Welcome to the Leadership Window podcast with Dr. Patrick Jinks. Each week through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and a professional speaker. And now, here's Dr. Patrick Jinks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 72 of the Leadership Window podcast. I am Dr. Patrick Jinks, and my guest today is asking the world a question. And those of you that have been listening to this show, or if you know me or have worked with me, you know that I make my living asking questions, and I talk a lot about the power of questions. Today, Daniel Matalon is going to share with us the question that he's asking the world through a powerful new movement. And we're going to talk a lot about the movement and what it means and how it relates to you as a social sector leader, if, if that's who you are listening to this show. And here's the question. The question is, is there enough? Is there enough? Do we have enough? And we're going to talk about what we mean by that. But the website is istthereenough.org. Uh, the social media hashtag is, is hashtag is there enough. Real simple. Is there enough.org. And we're going to refer to that site again at least once, uh, if not more. But by the end of the show, we'll refer to it again. It's on the show notes. We want you to go there and check this out because that's where you'll get all the nitty gritty and the detail of it. But uh, Daniel Matalon is a, he's really what this is. I could call it a campaign, but he calls it a conversation. It's a very provocative and a new conversation about the intersection of survival economics, which we tend to live in and think about and relate to, and social justice, which is a big deal in the world right now. Um, It's always a big deal in the world, but it's, it's more at the forefront recently. Uh, But uh, uh, Daniel is working from a number of different things. One is a book, a book that's uh, soon to be released called The First Agreement, Uh, a conversation, a unique social research experiment that has taken him to 22 countries and just a ton of conversations and resources from other people that are sort of asking this question maybe in a number of different ways and sharing some diverse perspective on it. I'm going to let him say more. I've said enough, I think, to introduce him. Daniel, um, I'm so glad you reached out. I'm so glad to to connect because I think this is not only um, a a conversation that I do believe we need to be having, it's a question we certainly have to ask ourselves as a globe, but it also relates very much to one of the big challenges that I know a lot of my coachees in my work struggle with and deal with in their organization, and that is the scarcity that limits us. So uh, I appreciate you coming on. Um, thank, thanks for joining us. We're just, we're really glad to have you today. <clears throat> thank you, Patrick. I'm so glad that you opened the show with putting the focus on the importance and the value of questions generally, not just this question, but questions in terms of conversation, opening up possibilities, alliances, and collaboration. So thank you for having me. Well, yeah, it's a total honor. And in fact, I was on a coaching call this morning and we were talking about these questions because as a coach, I get asked a lot of questions, right? What do I do about this? Should I do that? And how do I deal with this challenge? And what I have found and what I'm helping my clients find is that jumping to an answer is usually not the best answer. Um, Usually a question is best unpacked 
by asking the follow-up deeper questions that will lead us to multiple and more powerful answers. And in some cases, we're asking questions to which there is no known single answer right now. I would say this question of, is there enough? I'm sure there's a debate about that. That's why it's provocative. Some would say, oh, there's a definite answer to this. We have enough. We just aren't using it well. Others would say, no, there are scarce and limited resources in the world, and we have to use them properly. So, uh, yeah, that's what I love about the power of the question. I want to just open it up to you pretty quickly and have you tell us more about this campaign, this conversation. What is this? What is this? Is there enough thing out there that we're trying to introduce people to? I think the best answer to that in the beginning is to tell you it's an accident. You know, I was okay. pursuing some professional objectives, as many of uh, the listeners in your audience are, are doing day to day. And uh, mine are fairly ambitious and, and still ongoing and have definitely benefited from me pursuing this question. But I think in some exasperation to a small audience I was talking to, I think I first expressed it as, isn't there enough for what I wanted to propose? And the ripple that took place in the room was so dramatic. And my life changed very dramatically. Honestly, within a few weeks, I was being given entree to places of power, an agency that I'd never had before. Um, So I began to pay attention to that, particularly when an economist uh, confronted me rather angrily that I was rewriting economic theory to suggest that there might be a different way for us to look at the economic system than starting from scarcity, which that is what our economic system does. Mm -hmm. It says that there's not enough to go around as an assertion and then says, okay, now let's figure out how to divvy up the limited pie. So, you know, for those of us involved in human transformation, as I've been involved in the last 30 years and teachers of mine for the last 50 or 70 years in some cases, and most especially uh, from my study of Buckminster Fuller and the world game concept, a world game meaning to replace a war game, the idea that you don't have wars or conflicts without a war game first. And Buckminster Fuller, inventor of the geodesic dome and so many other great artifacts and and philosophy and mathematics that he left us, including the mathematics of synergy and things we use every day. He suggested that it was possible, even inevitable, that the world could work for 100% of humanity. He had a very long phrase for the world game that I won't repeat all here, it's on our website, but we simply shortened the world game concept into three words and provoke it as a question. Is there enough? Sometimes we use different words and different applications of the concept of is there enough, which I'm happy to dig into with you about how we take what you just described as the useful ambiguity of the big question and apply it to more specific things. But the initial discovery that this question actually had some impact was rather startling to me when you bring up the word scarcity, because in one way or another, especially since I studied Buckminster Fuller so many years ago in my early 30s, um, it was a shock to me to see that asking the question rather than as I'd done for 30 years of basically proselytizing that there's enough to go around. Uh, which had very limited impact. The minute I began to ask it and pose it as a question, well, my fortunes changed dramatically. The fortunes of you know social impact efforts I'm involved with changed dramatically. And I began to get all sorts of surprises across different cultures and backgrounds and people as I traveled to various countries. And I found that there's a bridge of collaboration 
that begins to take place in asking such a big examination question. Because even people who answer the question in a rather negative way that there really isn't enough to sustain us and we need less population on the planet and those sorts of things, which is not my point of view, of course, but for those that you know genuinely hold that point of view, we could meet on the idea that all human life has value and we ought to at least try to make it work for as many as we can if we can't agree on making it work for 100%. I want to pause right there because I, I, I want to, I don't think we can overemphasize what you've done there. You've taken those three words and rearranged them. You've taken them from there is enough to is there enough? And what that has done is opened up the conversation. I, one of the, one of the things I've observed recently, particularly in, in this, so much of the social justice conversation that's been happening more uh, uh, over the last couple of years is that in my observe, my point of view is that in many of these things we're trying to do and change in the world, we've somehow got to get from a place of preaching to a place of teaching mm. and that people, people are kind of getting tired of being preached to and it shuts you down immediately because someone is telling you that you're wrong and this is the real answer. And that just shuts it down. That shuts down the whole creativity, the conversation, the collaboration, the agreement. It's, it's done. You've, you've ended it. So you've simply rearranged three words uh, in just a simple and profound way that is opening up the conversation. Um, I secondly want to respond to this. You mentioned that scarcity is an economic concept and you're absolutely right. Um, one of the things that we talk about a lot in the organizations that I'm helping is this concept of trade-off. That is an economic concept. And the trade-off says you can have this and you can have that, but you just can't have them both. You're going to have to trade one for the other. Something's got to give. There's opportunity cost. There's, you know, and so uh, then it's a matter of, well, which one do we want? And what I want is different than what you want. And we can't have it both ways. And so I love that this conversation challenges that concept. And then the last thing I want to say is um, I want to give you my next question, which is, and I'm, I'm asking this question for our listeners because I'm imagining as I did in the beginning when you first reached out. And the question is, is this a, is this campaign? Is there enough? Is this a politically motivated campaign? How aligned with, is this with, with some sort of political agenda? I think right now, a lot of people are asking that question about everything. Everything we talk about now is, well, that's, that's because you're liberal or that you're saying that because you're a conservative and everything seems to have this political divide. What are the political origins of this campaign? If, in, if any, or the non-political origins or the, the relationship to <clears> politics. There are no political origins to the campaign, but yet the social research we've done around the concept has definitely put us in a lot of political rooms. And one of the things that we discovered in asking the question, is there enough, that we were able to have a conversation with people that suggests that at the end of the day, whatever you think there's not enough of, and there's a lot that there's not enough of, and you're speaking from, you know, a guy leading a campaign questioning whether there's a lot more abundance than we give credit for, there's absolutely scarcity in the world. And at the end of the day, whatever there's not enough of what's scarce, we're either going to have a conflict about it, or we're going to make a new agreement. And if we have a conflict about it, even a war, we're just going to waste a lot of blood, treasure, and time and eventually end up in a, an agreement, a treaty, usually set by the winners, which is why maybe we have an inclusion problem, we suggest. Mm. 
But if human beings, as Buckminster Fuller would have proposed, could skip war and go right to agreement, we might have a pathway forward that's more possible than what we have now. And it's a very simple statement. And this is so simple. I've really had this conversation with a kindergarten group. <laughs> so that's a funny story to share with you. But it, I, the point I reference in is this conversation is very accessible. So it's very simple to say that agreement is what makes change. Agreement is what builds wealth. Agreement is what builds justice when it wasn't there before. The power, the I feel the superhuman power that we do not know how to use agreement is because we come from 70,000 years of war. There's even some evidence that DNA carries visual information. So who knows if we're traumatized as humanity by that, that's a subject for psychologists and above my pay grade. But one of the things that we're proposing is that if humans could become by their own volition, it doesn't even need organization with a group of people like us, but if by some method they could become better at agreement tomorrow than they were today, that not only has solution benefits on a societal basis, but even personal and selfish incentive-based desire to make more agreement than before. And wow, what a crossover hit that would be is if we could get both people who are societally oriented and what others like to pejoratively call selfish oriented or the rugged individualist, you know, that we see within our societies, uh, if they could live together pursuing, some, pursuing something called agreement. So what actually is that? Do we even know what agreement is? So when I pose that question to myself, do I even know what agreement is? Once I had this realization from asking this question, is there enough? Well, I put myself into rooms. I now call it social research, but I didn't know I was doing that at the time. I was just curious where I would meet people at very different political views than me as my first test. Could I get agreement with people that I don't agree with? And I was able to in large numbers, and I was able to extrapolate why and be able to reproduce that all over the world. And so we become, out of this silly little three-word conversation, as a question, we've become kind of an agreement academy. We even have a program on our website called the Agreement Academy where you can actually learn this. But as we've conducted this conversation of is there enough around the world, we found that the output is that people are able to collaborate a little bit better than they did going into the conversation. And mark my words, without having to give up their values or their tribes to do so. Wow. Okay. Well, that's going to lead me to, to my next question. Let's just get in really then to maybe some practical tips on that. And, um, you know, obviously you can't take us through the full uh, Academy uh, curriculum here in the half an hour or so that we have, but um, it, so we talked about flipping the three words from there's enough to, is there enough? I love that flip. You're flipping something else on its head. You know, I'm, as I'm thinking about wars, I'm thinking about how many wars end with an agreement. I mean, that's how we end them. And so what if we put the agreement in front of the war rather than after the war? What if then, then we wouldn't need the wars. I love that flip too. Um, and I love that what you're trying to do is facilitate conversations that lead to agreement. So Give us what in your research and, and that you're now teaching through the Agreement Academy, what are two or three of those key principles that leaders keep in mind as to how do we do, how do we better <coughs> facilitate conversations that lead to agreement? 
what what would be you know sort of the one of the you know two or three of the top tenets that really form the foundation of that so uh, for reference we have a page called core conversations you'll find it under the sub menu of agreement academy it's a drop down menu and you'll see core conversations and one of them is what you just referred to in terms of trade offs you know where do we have to have guns or butter right and and i think what you were asking is can we have both right mm. Guns mm -hmm. or butter is a very old reference for some of the young people in the audience who don't remember uh, uh, budget arguments that used to be done a little more colloquially in uh, in the United States Senate, for example, yeah. which I'm a, a big watcher of for, for 50 years. Um, and, and the idea of trade-offs is also understanding that values come before position. Give you an example. We've had conversation with people all over the world about the subject of abortion can't get hotter than that. Right. And found some agreement among people who are quote unquote pro-life and quote unquote pro-choice. I think those words are failing us on both sides, Agreed. by the way. Agreed. But regardless of that, what is the value that someone who has an anti-abortion or pro-choice position can share is the value of human life. We can then argue about whose value of life is even greater than the other, the you know the unborn child or or the mother and so on and so forth. And we moderate these conversations, mining and searching for where there's a value agreement before there's a position one. Here's a, here's another example of that: is uh, two Americans, one a Trump supporter and one a non-Trump supporter, can get together. And, and I'm not saying they would, but if there was an incentive kind of like singing the national anthem or some sort of ritual that had value associated with it, where the two could reach across the table, shake hands and say, let's both agree we're Americans. Now let's argue. That's a very different, and I'm reporting, not, 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 not yeah. just opining here, mm -hmm. but I'm reporting to you that the output of that conversation is entirely different amongst those same two people. So that's the first thing. Is, is the understanding of values before positions. If we can make value agreements, we can vigorously debate policy and other sorts of positions and come to some, I wouldn't call it emotional empathy, but certainly cognitive empathy. This is sort of giving you a clue as to why the conversation of is there enough is something of a bridge. The, the second is very simple to say and incredibly difficult to do. And you'll see this on our core conversations page also, which is starting with sameness before difference. This is deceptively difficult. Uh, our, our uniqueness and our identity, which I'm all in favor of, I'm not talking about ego, but actual identity is marked by how we see ourselves as different from everybody else, right? You hear this in conversation all the time. I'm not like everybody else. I'm like this, right? And you'll see this sometimes on Clubhouse where we're uh, beginning to be quite active in this conversation where a guy will get up and he'll talk on the stage about five minutes or so about 20 years of his research. Let's say somebody like you with all your body of work would get up on Clubhouse and talk about all your conclusions. And the next person that speaks goes, that's really cool. I agree with about 90% of that, but I noticed you didn't say anything about the environment or child education or whatever their hot button issue is. And there's no breakdown of what was just said to see where is their agreement before we get to the disagreement. And it's the same thing with sameness before difference. And when we've tested this, 
if people if people focus on sameness first and difference second, they actually have more of a distinct identity doing that, but they do it from a place of bridge rather than conflict. And if you don't think that conflict is automatic, imagine the last time you lost your temper because somebody said something that really just got at your core. I mean, we are conflict machines. So to think that we wake up in the 21st century, even with this conversation you and I are having with these realizations, and we're suddenly going to be something post-warrior without a lot of attention, it's like asking an alcoholic, in my view, whether they're an alcoholic after they've stopped drinking. And if they're really on the road to recovery, they're saying, yes, I am. And I'm 10 years sober or whatever it is. I think humanity is in that same position when it comes to war and agreement. This is really good stuff to think about. And we just don't pause and think about these kinds of concepts often enough. We just, we lament the fact that right now we're not having a very civil conversation with ourselves, at least in this country, um, around things and especially social media. Oh my goodness. It has just destroyed emotional intelligence and empathy and, uh, I I have a little, I have a little insight to report to you on this, uh, piece too, since we began with the power of questions. As I said, it was accidental when I began asking the question, is there enough? When I realized it was a thing and people wanted to talk about it. (laughs) I mean, I have people talking about it for years now. Um, but, uh, cause of course the question, is there enough is situational and conditional going to be different for you different for me is different from you and me as a fingerprint but it also means that a month from now when you ask the question is there enough you're going to have a different set of ledgers of what's enough and not enough in your life right Mm. but once i realized that this thing had this kind of continuity went to register uh, a website of course and put up a hashtag to kind of lay my claim to the hashtag and uh, i discovered you can't put a question mark in a hashtag <laughs> right? or a domain name. Yeah, that's right. We call it a special character, right? A question mark is a special character. Can you imagine ever sitting down with a prospective client and not having questions about what their needs are and their mm. desires are? Even if you think they're going down the wrong way as a consultant, that would be, you know, <laughs> that would be malpractice, right? But think about human conversation online and why it's so vitriolic compared to somebody meeting in a coffee shop. I think there's something to this. I think the fact that we don't include questions in our global square of conversation has a lot to do with why we're creating so much conflict out of social media. I, I mean, I that makes total sense. Um, I, you know, when you were talking a while ago about starting from the position of sameness, even that requires an active listening that is based in true curiosity and understanding. Because Mm -hmm. even when we start from the place of sameness, it can very easily, and I think usually is, okay, you tell me your thing, I'll tell you my thing, let's talk about our sameness, but we're still sort of waiting our turn to speak rather than really listening to understand. So, and then by, by the time we get to the differences, we're already in that mode. We're, we're not listening to understand. We're listening to mark our own territory. <laughs> we're listening to, because we're, we're really just waiting our turn to speak and we can't wait to say why everything they just said is not good. And so this, I think this is what I love about coaching is it's most effective when it's based in true curiosity. Like mm-hmm. I really want to know. So why, why do you say this and where do you, where does this come from for you? And can you give me an example of what that looks like for you? Um, I've found that, that, you know, people love to be asked 
about their lived experiences, for example, some of these mm. racial conversations, you know, and I was talking to a person of color recently at a conversation. I was just asking her, you know, okay, so, you know, we hear all these things about what people need to do and how we need to end this and bridge the gap and whatever. And, and, and I know there's a lot of conversation about, well, you know, what, what is it that, that white people can do to help end racism? And I literally was asking her the question, you know, mm -hmm. what, what can, what, from your point of view, are you looking for, from me and, and what can I do better? And, you know, you, you, for whatever, however much you know me and what you know of me. And her answer was keep asking those kinds of questions. That's mm -hmm. the first thing you she goes, it's so refreshing just to hear that question. It sounded authentic. Sound like you really wanted to know an answer to that. And you're asking in true curiosity. And of course I was. And, and that what the answer to the question was ask that question. <laughs> That's a starting point that says <clears throat> you're really listening. You're not, this isn't just an exchange of my view and your view. I, lo I love how you share that story and, and the encouragement given to you because it wasn't necessarily that you had any more agreement than listening, but as in my book, the first agreement coming out next year, we'll point out the first agreement is to have one. And you can't have one without starting a question. It's just not possible. Yeah. When you when you haven't had a previous one, it's just you cannot skip that. Yeah. Um, and to reinforce what you're saying, John Gottman, for those who know that name of the Gottman Institute uh, around marriage and relationship, great social scientist, studied for 30 years before they ever started talking to the outside world about what they discovered, and they discovered that successful couples in relationship have about a half a dozen irreconcilable differences, the kind of irreconcilable differences that another couple going to divorce court would cite as the reason for why they're divorcing. And yet these successful couples have about a half a dozen of them. But what was characteristically different about the successful couples that they studied was they had this intense curiosity about why my partner is such an idiot about that issue. <laughs> you know, um, you know, that it would not be a place of condemnation as much as how the heck could you possibly believe that story? What gives you the sense that that's real if it's not real to me and so on and so forth? I've always been incredibly impressed with politically divided married couples. And I've seen them and I know some of them where you know, you've got one who's far right and one who's far left and their their political ideology you know they're just in constant disagreement and yet their marriage really works and i've always been impressed to go how how are you doing that because that's a big one i mean political ideology especially these days it's like it's all or nothing i'm all this or i'm all that there's a you know there there of course are people that live in the middle i guess most of us do but um there's just so much of it to carry around that and their value you know political ideology is you know, that's, that touches at the and, heart of and, our values and, and things too. Yeah. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but as I listen to those conflicts, they're almost all about history. There's very little conversation about what are we going to do about the history? Like history is important. I'm a history major. Mm. I love history. I have a historian in my business as literally our resident historian. So I love history, but you know, we, our identity as human beings, and I certainly don't express this to replace psychology, which I don't have any bona fides in, but from a point of view of working day to day, as I look at the world, our identity is expressed by our history and our choices. 
Um, Joe Dispenza says, who I also love, says we are our choices. I think we're both. I think we're only really about 30% of our history because I think that the first issue of leadership is to express possibility in a feasible way. I would say, again, in a feasible way. Um, but if we don't start with possibility of the future, where can we go from that conflict? And really the heart of the is there enough conversation, and that's people who actually engage in the full conversation where we interview them and stuff like that, or they can interview themselves about this question on the survey that's on istthereenough.org. So it's like a self-paced version of the conversation. The key question for us, we call the second question, is what are we going to do about it? Okay, if there is enough or there's not enough, if we agree or we don't agree, what are we going to do about all that? You know, because if we're not at that we question, what are we going to do about? We're going to stay locked in our historical pain-related disaster stories of, of, of our history. Is, is, is my family's coming out of uh, Austria that I even exist because my grandmother was, you know, savvy enough to figure out how to get the family out? Is my suffering greater than someone else who's the descendants of slaves? Why would we ever have that conversation? I want to hear about the descendant. I want them hopefully to understand that suffering has taken place with my people too, to a point so that we can then say, well, given our different experiences, how can we commonly move together if it's at even possible? And boy, survival is on the line of this question. I believe, and I state this in the book, and I have it on the book's pre-launch site, if you don't want to have to read the book, basically, the thrust of the book says that we are not as threatened by climate change, tribalism, inequality, or whatever social ill you want to fill in the blank, as we are by our inability to collaborate to meet those survival threats. The real survival threat is us, not what we're facing. Mm. I, I can't, I mean, I can't disagree with that at all. And the word you use in that is agreement, our inability to reach agreement. Um, and I also love that you paused on that to say, we have to define agreement because you're right. That can mean a lot of different things. Scarcity actually has nuances in its meaning. Um, you know, we, again, we have this conversation with our clients in their local communities. Well, there's only so much money to go around, you know, we're a small community and the foundations, you know, they have so many nonprofits to support or, uh, we, we you know, here's a common one, uh, people, human resources. We talk about how board members who are serving on four or five different nonprofit boards in their community have inherent conflicts of interest because who are they really championing and who are they really, um, generating resources for. And just by the fact that they're divided creates this conflict. And then you bring that to the board and they say, well, there are only so many community leaders and board members in this community to go around. So we have to duplicate. And we ask the question, is that really true? You know, is, is that really, there's that few people there's only what there's eight people in this town. Like, is that really true? And you start to challenge them on it. So, um, I, I do think there are nuances in the agreement. You, something you said a minute ago made me think of one of my favorite leadership definitions. And I, I collect leadership definitions. I just like the different ones and they're all, they all have such a great truth to them. Um, Kevin Cashman is a, a world-class consultant and coach with corn Ferry, and, um, wrote one of my favorite books on leadership called leadership from the inside out. And in, mm. in the first edition of that book, it's kind of a psychological, uh, self-awareness point of view on leadership, but 
he defined leadership as authentic self-expression that creates value. And so he describes it as a three-legged stool. A, it's got to be authentic. People see through superficial. It shuts it down. You know, it's got to be real. Second, it's got to get expressed. You know, we think things. We walk out of the boardroom going, I don't like this idea. But if you didn't express uh, the the quest, even the questions to to bring uh, a different point of view to the table, well, then that can't be leadership. And the third leg of the stool is it has to create value. And, you know, I think I've thought about this a lot. I know a lot of authentic self-expressors, you know, they're, they're authentic and they express it. And it's kind of that, you know, Hey, what you see is what you get. And, you know, this is just who I am deal with it. But all authentic self-expression doesn't create value. And the conversations you're trying to create is a leadership conversation. It's how do I bring authentic self-expression in a way that creates value, not more division. Anyway, I just, that was just that definition comes to mind in context of this conversation. There's a few things I'd like to say about, about what you've just said. I, I've referred earlier to the core conversations. There's six of them up there. One of them is about the distinction between wealth and money, Mm. which is really at the heart of, of embracing what is value really about? What is, what is an economic system based on value? And of course, Value is in the eye of the beholder, which is, gets us back to agreement and all of that. But what I want to uh, refer to is how do you get unstuck when you're stuck, whether you're a human being or an organization? And uh, some of our mentors, colleagues uh, called group partners, nobody on this uh podcast may have heard of them. They're a small company that deals with very big organizations. They're change agents of the highest order. They have these beautiful expressions. Since you do talk about expressions, Buckminster Fuller would call those artifacts. I call that manifestation, (laughs) which is another topic we could get into as to what we think that really means to manifest. Um, But the um, reason I mentioned group, it's grouppartners.net. And I encourage people to really peruse their fabulous material. that's all published out there, very out in the open as to how they work. And they told me that they spend, and this is a group that deals with 3M and the United Nations and McDonald's. I mean, really big companies that they come into uh, to unstuck, to unstick them basically. And they said, we spend about 80% of our research figuring out what's the right question. Back to our beginning of our talk here. And they said to me, if we do our job wrong and we go in with the wrong question, we solve the wrong problem, which I think is critical. In my professional work, which is about social impact investment and how to really upscale that, we're saying we shouldn't be looking for where the money is. We should be looking for where the safety for the money is. And that takes us down a whole road with our constituencies for that. And and I think it's true in any organization that's stuck are we even asking the right question here? And it's usually one we don't have an answer to, but unites all the issues. For example, on my professional work I just referred to with Impact Launchpad, we don't ask, is there enough? We ask, how do we come up with three and a half trillion to invest in the future of humanity? That's a number related to the SDG uh, objectives and, and what they cost, which is basically human infrastructure we're not coming up with the money for. And so we start saying, well, how do we manufacture that money? Wow, well, that's a concept. How do you manufacture money, right? But by asking that question, we begin to put ourselves in the road to the alignments and resources that can begin to answer. If you don't start with a new possibility when you're stuck, then you're going to stay stuck. 
Um, the second thing is, um, and I cover this in the book, I think anything that we're stuck in is usually because we're much clearer about what we don't want or can't do. And, it, and we're expressing that when you talk about expression. And we're not asking what can we do to replace all those negatives. So I literally take people through an exercise where they just empty their mind of all the negatives and all the obstacles and all the reasons they can't do it and let it sit with them for a day. Like, don't try to hold them back and just tell them to be positive or whatever it is. Be as negative as you want about all the things that you're facing and all the things you're avoiding and all the fears you have and all the dangers that you see. And then what do you replace it with the next day when we come and ask that, even if you don't know the answer to that question? Buckminster Fuller said that you don't end a bad system. I'm paraphrasing, so I'm mashing it, uh, I'm mangling it, I should say a little bit. Um, but you don't end a bad system by fighting the existing reality. You replace it with another that makes the old reality obsolete. That's not a warrior talking. That's an engineer and an architect saying, let's put that war and conflict and fear stuff aside and start looking at feasible possibility of a future where that past no longer has any impact. So to an organization that's struggling with, well, we only have so much audience and there's only so many people that care about our issues. Well, what would it be if more people cared about this issue? Would that increase the pie? So we're not fighting with other nonprofits for the same limited pie. How do we expand that? How do we enroll the next generation? Like, I don't have to have an immediate answer to that, but I do have to express it and express it with my team and enroll my team that we need to come up with an answer to that, even if we don't know it today. I, we are in, we are not only in the same lane, we might, we're probably in the same car right now on this. <laughs> um, the, so, and I, and I will tell you, I've shared this on this show before and with others, and it's kind of corny and cheesy, but it just makes the perfect illustration for me anyway. Um, when I learned how to ride, I love to ride motorcycles. I've got two full dresser touring motorcycles, the big ones where you travel across the country and just, you know, have a blast. And I had to learn how to ride. I, this was about four years ago. I decided I wanted to, I wanted to ride. One of the first things you learn is that the bike goes where you're looking. And so there's this fixation issue and there's tons of YouTube videos on this. You can actually go and watch this happen. There's plenty of dash cam video and GoPro video where this is exactly what's happening. And the concept is that on a motorcycle, and I guess it's this way in a car, but it really seems exaggerated on a motorcycle. If I'm riding down the road and there's a big, huge pothole, that's a bigger deal on a motorcycle than it is in a car. So um, if I stare at that pothole on my way to it and go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, don't hit the pothole, don't hit the pothole, I will hit the pothole every single time. What I've got to do instead is see the pothole, acknowledge it, and shift my vision to where I need the wheels to go. And that's where I go. And, um, you know, they talk about things like seeing through the curve. And when you're making a U-turn on a motorcycle, for example, you don't look at your front wheel right ahead of you. You literally turn your head behind you and you put your eye on the spot you want to end up on. And the bike will just go there. And it's really magic for anybody that rides. You're, you're nodding your head right now. And if you don't, you just got to trust riders. It is like magic that the bike goes where you think. And so the concept, for example, in strategy is we ask questions in board meetings like, well, what are the critical barriers to success? 
well, why would we fixate on the barrier? If we just fixate on the barrier, that barrier is going to just eat our lunch in the conversation. So we ask very much to what you're asking. We'll, uh, we'll turn it around and say, let's ask that question a different way. So it's a fair question, but let's ask it in a more productive way and say, what, what do we need to achieve success? And how might we achieve that? And how might we get creative in altering our course if need be? And how might we, and what do we, and, and how can we, rather than why can't we, and what's keeping us from, that's fixating on the pothole. And then the last thing I'll, I'll say, and I'll flip it back, I still have a couple more questions about the campaign itself, and then I want to shift just a little bit. But it also reminds me, a Warren Berger, not the late, Supreme Court justice, but uh, an author named Warren Berger has uh, written a book, among other things, called A More Beautiful Question. Great book. You'd love it if you haven't already read it. Um, but somewhere in his work, he talks about this sort of three-question path to innovation. And it's why, what if, and how might we? Why, what if, and how might we? And there's a very appreciative inquiry tone to those questions. And there's no, there's no, nothing's in stone, right? It's how might we, right? It's just dreaming. It's just possibility. And what if, what if we could do this? So, you know, why does this organization get all the grant money? What if, what if we could align our services and products with things that didn't require grants? What if we could appeal to grants outside of our region? What if we could, and start thinking about possibility and then move to the, how might we question? How might we reframe that? How might we develop the competencies we need that we don't currently have to get to get there and to make those things happen? So um, I don't know if I'm saying the same thing you are, but I think so. Um, <clears throat> no, I think you are. And, and I'm suffering listening to the motorcycle reference because I've broken my ankle twice on a motorcycle, <laughs> the same ankle from exactly that experience of focusing on the pothole in one case, a real pothole. Mm -hmm. Actually, it was a pothole related to an old... Uh, a streetcar piece of metal that was not cleaned up in the city of Toronto and, and another one on the side of a car um, mm -hmm. in St. Mm -hmm. Louis, Missouri. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so that was really fascinating to listen to that and have that realization. I think we all need to be compassionate with each other that, as I'm sure you'd know, intellectually understanding these things and applying them is, is a matter of practice. Um, and focus. And um, I think that when we are examining it by a question, I don't think I've ever said this in any podcast before, we're instilling responsibility. And I really think this is a reason and a clue for you as to why we've been able to bring conservatives and liberals together when we have found ourselves in political conversation, bringing those sides together, uh, because everybody respects responsibility. And I think when we come up with the obstacles as why we can't, we're creating the opposite of responsibility. We're creating a justification and a reason to not, cont to not continue to innovate. Yeah, and I want to make I want to stay on the website here for just a second. And I do want to tell our listeners, having been through the website, um, Go, go, in, go into that website with an open mind of this is a set of sort because you, you've got all kinds of sources and thought leaders that are somewhere in this arena or touch somewhere on this 
concept. These are not necessarily like endorsing champions of your campaign. These are just sources where you're getting some of your thought and research from, and it ranges everything from, you know, Martin Luther King and, and his letters to, um, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned Buckminster Fuller and, uh, um, someone who's sort of in some of the, um, political talk a lot is Stephanie Kelton in her book, the deficit myth, where she talks about modern monetary theory. And you're going to, there's some things on that website that you'll look at and go, Oh, I don't, yeah, no, I don't, I don't agree with that. Or, or, yeah. Can I tell you on that page, what the uh, all time favorite of all the pieces on that page is uh, the dancing guy. Oh yeah. 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 uh, How to start a movement. I love that too. I love that too. Don't, don't give it away. Let's let our, let's let our listeners go to that. And how to create a movement is, is sort of what this is. And you know, the, the hint is you need that first, you need that first follower and how you get And it's relevant to what we're talking about. So I'll mention that uh, there's another piece that's my favorite on there, which is a 92nd piece from the movie Apollo 13. Yep. Yep. Where they just throw all these square pegs basically on the table to a bunch of engineers and they say, you got 90 minutes to make this square peg fit in this round hole or those guys are going to die. Yeah. (laughs) And and, you know, I don't know if it's in this particular clip, but but one of my favorite lines in that movie is when the flight commander, Gene Krantz or the command and control uh, mission control commander asks the question because he's got all these people yelling at him you know oh, we don't have enough of this and there's not a, we don't have enough oxygen to do that and the limb can only right. live on such and such and he says let's let's go, come at this from a position of status and he asks this question what do we have on the ship that's good it's my favorite line in the movie mm. what do we have on the ship that's good and mm. in fact i think that comes just before this scene that you've posted on on your website where they pull out all the ma- materials and say that interesting but, but you know and, um <clears throat> go ahead go ahead you know buckminster fuller's reference to spaceship earth sort of is relevant here too because there's a lot of good things happening on this spaceship called earth that we're not paying attention to i urge people to go to gapminder.org or the sources page you'll see uh, the late Hans Rosling the founder of it talking about how we are losing our mind over overpopulation and totally not asking the right question mm-hmm. there uh, but the entire gapminder organization has these wonderful surveys that you can do and i urge people to take them without looking up the answers on google and just see what their opinions are about the state of the world versus the statistics. It's quite an important set of conversations they're having over there. Yeah, absolutely. Another book I just started reading that's from your site is um, uh, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. And um, I'd like to, yeah, he's I'd got like to several, say, you know, there's he's, <clears> 21 rules would, and, and different things. So really interesting reading. And the word provocative is what comes to mind. It's not about, do I agree with this or not? It's about, it makes you think in, in different ways. For example, he talks about, I don't know if I'm going to get this right, but he talks about how we lament over the lost jobs that occur when technology and automation are developed. But what if, <laughs> what if we realize that that technology and automate maybe creates more jobs or, you know, it creates the need for the jobs or how do we reframe this differently? So there's, so there me, really is a lot let of me mention, uh, provocative yeah. stuff on the site. Let me, let me mention two things about Yuval Harari that are relevant to this conversation. Um, reading Sapiens was a clear turning point on the formation of this conversation. Mm. 
um, on the basis of him stating that, hey, countries are fictions. Law and justice is a fiction, right? Because we make it up. It doesn't exist in nature. We make it up. Yeah. Well, I was really disturbed by that concept, as good thinking sometimes does. Uh, and what I came to, uh, and the reason I was uncomfortable with is it seemed imaginary, elusive, and inaccessible. Um, we, not all of us are great fiction writers, so to speak, but all of us can tell a human story in a nonfiction way of just whatever my story is. Um, so what I, <clears throat> what I would say that when we talk about agreement, we're talking about what he calls fiction. And the reason we call it agreement is because unless people agree on the fiction, the fiction is meaningless in the way that he uses the term. So I would encourage people who have followed Yuval Harari to think about that. The second thing is uh, there's a page on our site called Advocacy when it talks about us. And we have some issues there that we are standing behind that we think are good for the world. So they're nonpartisan in that way. Like we think all of our new water infrastructure should come from the atmosphere where there's plenty of water that doesn't have to disturb the groundwater. And by the way, you could cover the earth in it for about a trillion dollars one time spent. So if you want to talk about real human infrastructure, that's possible if we had agreement. Um, and one of the other things we talk about there is universal income, which we think is possible and feasible to be done without government or taxes. So you can understand why a conservative might be listening to that conversation as opposed to the government just handing out money. Right. Um, and, and, and that's pretty important to this conversation about jobs as well, um, is that we are moving into a technological age where much of what we used to think of as labor is ephemeralizing, is yeah. disappearing. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, I think you're right. I think that um, there's a few things on here. I mentioned the, uh, the deficit myth that that's another thing that, that conservatives may rail on and maybe, maybe rightly so, but the point is it is a, it's a provocative stop and make you think sort of thing. When, when conservatives hear universal private income, you know, they're thinking about, Oh, that's socialism. That's communism. That's whatever, whatever it is. That's, you know, that you'd have to tax the devil out of that. Then there wouldn't be competition and free enterprise and blah, 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 blah. And all the philosophical reasons. And, um, you know, well, well found it. I, I can relate to, to those, to those views. Um, you read, you read, um, you know, the, the, uh, the deficit myth, for example, and you, you, you know, one of the, the things that she says, and I think it's oversimplified in, in some of the media, you hear the media talk about, oh, well, Stephanie, was it Kelton, right? Yeah. She, she, she just says, you just print more money. Just keep printing more money. There's never, we never run out. Well, that's not what she says, <laughs> And so when you listen to it, you think we can't just print more money into into infinity and just buy whatever we, you know, then yeah. Um, but that isn't quite what she's saying. What she's saying is that, and I'll, we won't get into the political conversation too deep. My point is, um, you know, what she's saying is that the government budget is a little different than a household budget. And here's why. Mm -hmm. And so listening to that and reading that and just yeah, let's get a better understanding of it. She has an amazing story in there about taxes and income that, that is about a father incentivizing his kids to mow the lawn. It's a, it's such an amazing, I'm not gonna even going to give it away and let our listeners go read it. But the point <laughs> is that the sources that are on the site are there 
to um, not just support your campaign, your ideology, your point of view, but to provoke thought and to ask questions. Again, the overall arching question is, is there enough? It's a fair question. It's a powerful question. It's a necessary question. Here's my question for you. What about it? Right? What's the end game here? You've started this campaign, you've started this conversation. Is there enough? What are we supposed to practical? What's your vision of, 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 you know, our listeners or anybody that's a part of this practically acting on this and doing anything other than going, Hmm, that's an interesting question. Is there enough? And I'll read some stuff and I'll make my decision. Yes or no. And then I'll move on with my life. What's the end game here? Such an interesting question because we think that the skill of agreement is an evolutionary tool of human survival and that this conversation of is there enough breeds agreement capability. So for us, we want to see it provoke some examination of human culture around that as a replacement for war. Um, The conversation is our real product. That is truly our aim, but we have to give it some definition. (laughs) And one of the things that came out of our conversations and our research and, and doing those possibility questions we refer to is we said, look, the reason we can't make agreement is because of war. And one of the living heroes of our campaign is Benjamin Ferenz, who is the man who put the term crimes against humanity into law. He's the last living Nuremberg prosecutor. He's 102 years old. God bless him. And uh, the statement of his life was law is what replaces war. That's a very hot topic right now, obviously, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Is, well, what about unjust laws? And what about when the system is used in an unlawful manner and so on and so forth? But his expression, and he saw atrocities on many sides throughout his career, things that he still holds trauma about. I heard him speak four months ago and he was brought to tears just remembering the trauma of his youth and the things that he saw in liberating the camps and all this kind of stuff. And he said, law over war, to which we say, what is agreement, but in every man's law, a five-year-old can make agreements, but they're not making any laws. Right. And so what we said then is if we're saying, well, can we skip war and go right to the agreement? We came up with a treaty. And this treaty is going to issue 100 million certificates, which will be etched in a blockchain. So it has an NFT associated with it and all that sexy stuff. But it is an expression. I think, remember, you said earlier before, it's critical that we express ourselves. And so this is not a treaty of nations. It's a treaty of humans. And each human is making a commitment to themselves and their history. Remember I said, we're a history on our choices and they're exercising a choice on behalf of their history and behalf of their clan, behalf of their traditions and everything else to say, thank you. You all brought me here. Now I'm going to exercise. How can I be as good at agreement for the rest of my life as I can become? It's a best efforts guarantee. And it's not a commitment that I make, whether the other guy does, or he does, or she does, or she made a commitment and now she's no longer making that commitment. It's a decentralized treaty of humanity, not of nations. We don't know of anyone in history that precedes it. And we say it's the last treaty humanity will ever need to sign. And why do we say that? 100 million people is only one and a half percent or so of the population. And eventually we'll have 10 10 billion people. So let's call it, you know, 1%. Uh, 
uh, that's an interesting take on a new a new vision of what a one percent means compared mm-hmm. to what it means today. But we think it's virtually impossible from the ripple effects that take place on 100 million people signing that agreement uh, compared to the billions of people by that time who have had the conversation in some way who didn't sign the agreement. The ripple effect of that, we think, makes it incredibly difficult for a despot or a tyrant to be coming into power in any form of any nation or any association or organization, because we think that would create a new ripple, a new culture of humanity to replace war and conflict. That is incredibly interesting and fascinating and um, inspiring as a thought. Uh, Sounds very hopeful. I I, I do think it's important that our listeners understand this treaty is not, you said, you know, it's not a treaty of nations. It's not a treaty of political parties. It's not a treaty of legislative bills that we're going to endorse or not endorse. It's not a treaty of ideology. It's a treaty of best effort that I will do. Like say again, what it is you're agreeing to when you sign this treaty. Sure. The essence of it is I'll do whatever I can to make as much agreement in my life as I can. It has it has a paragraph devoted to that as to why it's a, we like to call it a one paragraph constitution of humanity, not the constitution of humanity. I would like to be very clear. There's yeah. thousands of constitutional efforts amongst humanity outside of nations that we support that kind of effort. Ours is a baby step. Uh, of one paragraph that then could lead to others, but it has a second paragraph, which asserts that the person signing it has the authority to sign it because they're a human being, you know, yep. Yep. darn it, you know, <laughs> like, you know, to, to, I'm a human being, God damn it. You know, it's like, it's like human beings are not valued economically as individuals as they ought to be. We think a human being is more valuable than an entire nation, a single human being. That's how valuable a single life is. Mm. So a human being has the authority in their humanity to express a future and a commitment, irregardless of what everybody else is doing. So we think that it's a treaty that can't lose. If we you know, fail to get our 100 million, let's say we only got 10,000 and disappeared, those 10,000 will create some ripple effect of more agreement makers than yeah. warriors on the planet. Yeah, the, the more the better, in other words. So um, again, for our listeners, it's isthereenough.org where you can go and uh, and you know, check it all out for yourself. Decide how, how deep you want to go into it. But at, at the very, very least, go check it out. There's some really um, um, enlightening resources on the page for you. I'm going <laughs> to uh, take a short break. And uh, for about 30 seconds to to, uh, let you hear from our sponsor. And then I've got just a few wrap up questions for you, Daniel, particularly sort of shifting to uh, the practical nature of this scarcity versus abundance thinking in our communities and what we might be able to do about that. So, And uh, and let me, before we go to that, sorry to interrupt because it's so important that I add this for your listeners. We're in pre-launch on that treaty. Um, We're going to launch it in 2023. Okay. And we have a goal to reach a certain amount of people in our pre-launch to exceed the expectations the media is going to have of us because we're creating those media expectations. So if your listeners are moved by this or moved enough to go through our survey, which makes our argument as to why humanity even needs a treaty, Mm. and you decide to sign it, you couldn't sign it today, but you can join our pre-launch. And that matters a lot because it gives us 
the power to be able to do many more things than we would have had otherwise. So yeah, I just absolutely. To add that. And I think a lot of our organizations would get that. I mean, it's very, it's akin to like a, a pre silent phase of a capital campaign. You know, our, our leaders can relate to that and the power of that create the momentum um, and, and extend that sense of hope. So again, when we come back, I do want to quickly hit on uh, the, the um, relationship to this concept and what we're doing in our local communities to, str- to deal with and how we're struggling with scarcity. So we'll be right back. Hey, this is Michael Wallace with Leadership Systems Incorporated. And on behalf of LSI, I want to say thanks for supporting our friend Patrick Jinks and the Leadership Window podcast. We've been partnering with Patrick for many years, and we are so proud to have him represent us as an LSI certified executive coach. As a mutual friend, we'd like to offer you exclusive rates on some of the same training that Patrick has received over the years, as well as some new experiences that we've been developing. Head over to leadershipsystems.com slash jinx to see the upcoming training events on our calendar and register today to keep learning and growing. Again, that's leadershipsystems.com slash jinx, J-I-N-K-S, for exclusive pricing on LSI's virtual and in-person training events. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Michael, and thanks to all the folks at uh, Leadership Systems Incorporated. Been doing this for over three decades now, Dr. Jim Smith and Taylor and the team, and I'm proud to be an adjunct coach with that organization as well as the work that I'm doing with the Jinx Perspectives. I appreciate that. If you want to learn how to coach and get a coaching model that you can use either as a professional coach or just to add the coaching tool to your tool bag as a leader inside your organization, Leadership Systems Incorporated is, in my estimation, the best place you can turn to to get that coaching and even get certified. So thank you for that. Daniel, um, let me just ask at least one question about just maybe I'll just ask an open ended question and let you kind of think out loud about this. But this is a big global concept, big philosophical concept. This is this is pretty deep. And as we you know, you can take any piece of this and unpack it and it just gets super, 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 super complex. There's layer upon layer. And yet it also is a very simple framework and concept at the same time. But for our listeners, many of whom are nonprofit leaders in their local communities dealing with this concept of scarcity that I think in my estimation, and I think a lot of my colleagues and and practitioners in the sector would agree with they really do paralyze us. And we know that the, this scarcity mindset paralyzes us, but we don't know how to overcome it. Seems too big. It seems like, you know, I can't overcome this by myself. Um, and so our organizations talk about there's only so much money in our community. There's only so many board members. Or there's only so much talent. Or That's a big deal right now. People struggling to find talent. Everything is from this scarcity standpoint. Maybe talk a little bit about at a local level, at a conceptual practical level, how does this shift to an abundance mindset, a creativity mindset, an innovation mindset, however you want to frame it? Um, what are some things that our leaders can and should maybe be thinking about in their local community to start helping move toward, yeah, maybe more agreement, but just a different mindset on the scarcity of resources to achieve a social mission. I'm just going to let you kind of carry that and we'll wrap it up with a couple of other uh, general leadership questions that I ask all my guests, but I would just love to hear your, you know, what thoughts come to your mind in the context of that question. In the book, we talk about how to produce agreement. What are the guidelines? What are the rules, so to speak, of the game of agreement? And one of them is 
let's try to have one conversation at a time. And which one are we having? Which is the premier? It's kind of like that thing we talked about earlier about what is the appropriate question? Otherwise, you solve the wrong problem. So I think one of the things leaders need to do is distinguish and isolate what are we most focused on right now? <clears throat> Keep the conversation to that. And again, going back to earlier where I said, let's just blast all the negativity out of the room by not telling people to be positive, but asking them what they're negative about, put it up on a whiteboard and look at it together. Don't judge it. You know, don't tell people why they should be thinking abundantly. When people are in scarcity, telling them to think about abundance, I didn't find worked for 30 years. I tried it very well, you know, in most cases. And, um, and I've been on both sides of that. Somebody telling me there's abundance when I don't think so and telling somebody else when they don't think so. It just doesn't work very well. But great, I think great beginning point. to transcend scarcity and abundance and describing what enough is, is quite a different thing. Again, which conversation are we having? Are we having a conversation about polar opposites? Because the other thing we discovered about agreement, this is a second piece from that chapter, is let's not dramatize in our expression with exaggeration, right? We talked about Stephanie Kelton before and people want to dismiss it as just printing money with no obligation and responsibility. It ain't quite what she said. And so you might start, even if you vigorously disagree with modern monetary theory of what part of what she's speaking of does have some truth and value. Now let's take down the rest, right? Mm -hmm. This is also important internally in these organizations is, okay, let's recognize all the stuff that we have in place that is an obstacle. But the minute we start with these assertions that there's only so much money to go around, well, then that's all the money there is, folks. If you don't start asking the question of how do we bring in more money into what is clearly a hungry space, right? What are we going to do in order to establish? And I think also, you know, a nonprofit in particular, clearly professionals recognize your nonprofit has to make a profit to sustain itself. That is definitely a topic for another day about how we don't talk about sustainability in the right way. That's absolutely. also part of our core conversations. Yep, absolutely. But, you know, and so we have to start thinking and acting uh, around those questions. And I'll add the final piece is once you determine what magical result that if you could pull it off would change those circumstances, you must become definite about that, even in the face of indefinite means to achieve it. I'll repeat this. <clears throat> we have to be absolutely definite on the goal. And we have to be as indefinite and flexible on how to get there because that becomes dogma, right? But I'll tell you in my professional work, I people will discover on Is There Enough a, a link to our company Impact Launchpad. Uh, which is a for-profit social impact studio. And we're doing some really ambitious things there to the point that people fairly criticize us for doing too much, fair criticism. Uh, but when people have asked me directly is, how do you know you're going to pull this off? I've said, because I'm going to pull it off or die trying. Like you have to get your definiteness to that place. Yeah. Yeah. All in. Uh, Peter Block, um, who I think is now in his 80s, if he's still living, and I think he is, uh, wrote a great book called Community. And it is about the conversations that we have. And one of the things he says in it, and this is just sort of a, a rehash of concepts that we've hit on, but 
um, something to the effect of we've got to stop viewing our communities as a set of problems to be solved and start viewing them as a set of assets to realize. And uh, it's such a, I mean, all of the folk, I've been in the nonprofit sector now for three decades and all the community meetings and focus groups and conferences and facilitated conversations and all of these things, so many of them about the problems that we're going to solve. And what's the most important thing to address in our, well, it's homelessness and we have a problem because there's not enough shelter or there's not enough the... And, and the, the conversations in our sector are, they are just saturated in there's not enough of this and there's not enough of that. So this resonates and your, your challenging of the dichotomy between scarcity and abundance with the word enough is, is a really profound point to think and, and take with us. So I want to thank you for that. And for just, again, uh, you know, op- opening the minds, um, certainly mine to look at some things and, and pay attention to them and ask these questions a little bit differently because I happen to be one of those humans, <laughs> which means I'm partly accountable for this whole thing as well. Um, I want, I want to and, ask, and Oh, go ahead. Let me, let me, uh, offer to this point that it's all about conversation. You can't create agreement without conversation. Um, so I'm going to invite your audience to join us in conversation on the social audio that we're doing beginning on clubhouse. So if you go to, is slash clubhouse, you'll see opportunities to participate in this conversation and on clubhouse. I'm going to tell you, uh, Patrick, we don't ask the question, is there enough? We ask the question, is there enough water? Is there enough food? Is mm. there enough compassion? Mm. Yeah. Is there enough justice? So each one of the events has a focus like that. So we take the deliberate vagueness of is there enough and apply it specifically to a category where experts and the audience can come in and debate about that particular topic. It's quite interesting. It's good to have those reference points. I'll share something with you now that I just thought of um, for you to consider to add to your model or, or at least to maybe, maybe test on a few things. And that is the question formulation technique. And it is taught by an organization called the Right Question Institute. I happen to be a teaching member of the organization. It's a nonprofit, rightquestion.org. And um, what they do is they this, this their sort of um, main mission, and I'm, I'm, this isn't the mission statement word for word, but this is essentially what they do, is they teach school teachers how to teach their students how to ask their own questions. So, you know, if you think of level one of teaching is I tell you, remember, it'll be on the test. (laughs) Level two is I'm going to ask you questions and make you think critically. You know, why do you think X equals six here? Right. (laughs) Or, or whatever. But the level three is you ask the questions. And so, for example, they'll start with what they call a Q focus. There's a whole, by the way, Harvard has partnered with the right question Institute for a certificate in this training of of um, the question formulation technique, which is now a trademarked sort of program. Um, But for example, first time algebra students, they walk into the room on day one and on the board it's written two two X times, you know, three equals whatever, or two times three equals X or whatever. And they don't, you know, they're first time algebra students, so they don't understand the equation. They don't understand an X now has been introduced into a math problem. And so the first thing the teacher does is split the room into groups and give them each flip charts and a scribe. And their job as a group is to ask as many questions as they can 
about what they see on the board. And she doesn't even tell them what it is. Don't not, not ask as many questions as you can about this mathematical equation, right? But ask as many questions as you can about what you see on the board. Wow. And this, they, they do this at the elementary school level, even with different Q focus. It can be anything. The Q focus can be a picture. What questions do you have? And so the kids come up with questions like, why is there an X? Are there other letters? Um, is it, does it always equal this? Why is it italicized? You know, why is it slanted? Um, is this math? Why do I need that? And they start asking all these questions. And what's happened now is as the teacher is listening to the questions the students have about this concept, the teacher can do two things. One, they're getting a temperature check for where the understanding and the critical thinking in the room actually is. What kinds of questions are they asking? But now they've opened up the student's appetite for learning because now we're going to answer their questions. And who doesn't want their questions answered? So it's really powerful. I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking in your conversations, is there enough water? What if the Q focus was the supply of water in the world? And generate as many questions as you can about that. Now, there's more to it. So they generate the questions, then they refine the questions to make all of them open-ended rather than closed-ended. So is there enough water is a closed-ended question. How would we re rephrase that? How much water is enough? Right. That's a more open ended question. Um, and so they'll refine them all. And then and then what I do in board, because so I use this with boards in terms of their strategy is then I'll say, if we could only meaningfully get to the answer to three of these questions on your sheet, what had those three questions better be? In other words, what are the ones we can actually dive into and do something with that would that would bring the most value? So um, look it up. Let me know if you want to learn more about that. But I'm oh, just thinking course. this could be a fascinating um, um, enhancement to the conversations that you're having where people are not just answering a question being posed to them, but they're literally the ones also coming up with the questions. And it, re it reframes thinking in a very, very powerful way. You know, you're bringing this up, and I know we want to go to your final questions, but you're bringing this up, uh, bring something worth mentioning in particular to your audience, uh, which is we're a nonprofit ourselves. We're 501c3 registered in Texas. Um, we definitely enjoy donations that allow us to grow our conversation, just like everybody else who's listening enjoys donations for their efforts. Um, but we're engaging in building a, a, a media something or other out of, uh, you know, an audience that we intend to make this large, you know, more than 100 million people. And, uh, you know, as a nonprofit, it will engage in some earned income. Uh, around those activities, uh, given our expected success. And what we want to do with the foundational side of what we develop with whatever is in excess of what we need to run, and, and I'm sure there will be excess. Um, and we want to support organizations, not today as we sit here when you and I record this, but probably in 2023 or 24, certainly, um, that help amplify the a thousand flowers blooming that we need on whatever the heck produces collaboration and really makes the world game. We're very interested in making the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest time possible through spontaneous collaboration without ecological offense or disadvantage to anyone is what Buckminster Fuller laid out as a mathematical as well as a moral compass. And so anything that can bring people to our conversation is in our interest to support 
and that's a great example that you just gave. And I'll definitely be checking out your organization for that. So thank you for mentioning it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, it's not my organization. I'm a, you know, you can kind of uh, join as a member and I, I'm a teaching member because I'm not a school teacher, but I'm applying the model. I mean, in the workplace and in, in nonprofit boardrooms and among nonprofit staff where they're generating the questions. And so it's a, it's a powerful thing, but so, uh, th thanks for the, um, thanks for the inspiration on that. Uh, I got two questions for you that I ask all my guests. This will, this will wrap the show. One is, um, you really come at this from obviously an, a very, um, you know, we talked a little offline, some things that our listeners probably don't have time to hear now, but your background and, you know, you sort of your, your family mix, your lived experiences when it comes to leadership, which is what this show is ultimately about, who are one or two leaders in your life that you would say have had maybe the greatest impact on your point of view on leadership and why? Um, and, I mean, anyone, no, whether you know them or not, just leaders in your life or past who you would say have had the greatest impact on your point of view on leadership and why? It, it would be indistinguishable at this point between what is there enough is and, and me in answering this question. And I've mentioned two that deserve to be re-emphasized of what they cross-pollinate in each other, which would be Buckminster Fuller and Benjamin Ferencz mm. and, and how they relate to each other in the concept of the world game, which signing this treaty or engaging in this conversation we submit as a precursor to playing the world game. So maybe it's a way of actually playing the world game that everybody can really play just to engage in the conversation. Mm. <clears throat> but uh, there are two other people uh, both men mentors, great friends, one who's passed away, and one, fortunately for your audience, who's thriving and going strong, and you can just skip me and go right to her, uh, because um, <laughs> uh, Marsha Martin, MarshaMartin.com, mm. uh, encourage everybody to check out who she is. Many of you listening to this will not have heard of her. Um, I intend to change that. <laughs> Uh, through our campaign as well. Uh, but she's very well known in the circle she's known in of the greatest transformational leadership communications coach in organizations to individual entrepreneurs and, you know, to a much greater audience. She's almost like, uh, um, uh, what was that Tom Hanks movie? Um, Forrest Gump, you know, it just ends up in, you know, she or Zelig, you know, from Woody Allen, if you know that concept of just mm. kind of being there everywhere in the world of human transformation um, uh, behind a lot of great communicators that people, you know, buy lots of books from, let's say she was part of making sure that the secret got developed, all of that. Yeah. Um, and Marsha worked with Buckminster Fuller, promoted him to 800,000 uh, audience members in the late 70s. She was she's the reason why Est which without S, there would be much less going on in human transformation throughout the world. And Marsha taught me 25 years ago this concept. She said, life lives in the conversation. That's where it lives. <clears throat> when you talk about manifestation, and I've never heard anybody articulate in a practical, appliable way about what manifestation is than Marsha. But when we talk about manifestation, it all comes out of agreement. And there is no agreement without a conversation to precede it. Our entire thing 
which someday somebody might refer to as a movement, is only ever going to be about conversation. There's no, there's nothing we want anybody to do other than that. If it happened to be bobbing for apples, you know, we would do that. But it happens to be conversation and agreement that makes the world work for more of us towards 100% of humanity, just like the concept of towards a more perfect union, which is not an American-only concept. That is a humanity concept towards a more perfect union. The other person I'll mention who has passed away is one of the greatest friends of my life, and uh, his name was Ken Wines, also somebody uh, people would not have heard of that I'll do something about because he has one of those stories you'd see in a movie of transformation um, where he liberated himself from prison 20 years early by breaking down the prison walls of his mind. And that's a true, a true story. Um, and, uh, and so his world of transformation had made such a big impact on me in my early thirties. Um, and, and most of all from that was the acceptance. Think about a man in prison, right? The acceptance of his circumstances, was the beginning of his transformation. Mm. It made the it made the bars irrelevant to the point that he was sent to other prisons to transform other prisons because he transformed his own prison as a prisoner. Wow. True story. Wow. <clears throat> so that's the other person I would mention. I think of myself as quite a smoothie of those four people. <laughs> okay. So two of them living. Yeah. Grateful that Ben Ferenz is still living. Um, and I hope we have him for another 20 years. Uh, so he can continue to articulate law over war. It's a really important concept for the world to work for 100% of humanity, as much as Buckminster Fuller. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing those. Uh, I, I love the stories behind that question, and um, those are inspiring. But it leads to my last question. So I'm imagining that as a blend of these four people, and I'm certainly, I'm certainly sure more than that as well, but what would be the, um, the Daniel Matalan 20 second soundbite of this is the most important thing for leaders to know and understand and keep in mind. So leadership, your number one tenet of leadership. If you had a microphone in front of all leaders for the next 20 seconds, what's the most important thing for you in terms of leadership? Your team exists before the people who populate it do. Your team exists because of culture. Culture is a set of agreements you're clear on. The treaty we put out is actually rule number 12 of 11 others we have as a culture. Um, and that's all we have because we, one of our cultures is to have a minimum of rules. <laughs> mm. So, you know, so that, so that we speak highest to the value of freedom and choice, right? But, but minimum is not zero. So that's right. articulate <laughs> and establish what are those agreements you're going to have in place for when disagreement inevitably comes in, which is a feature? Speaking to you as now an amateur social researcher, mm. we've become over here, is a feature, not a bug, of building agreement. It's how we engage in disagreement that allows us to mine. Think of it like human mining, like the way you think of crypto mining, yeah. to mine agreement out of disagreement. But that comes from a culture that honors that, not a culture that honors what we honor mostly now. Wow. Very insightful. Very inspiring. Daniel, thank you. Um, and um, 
you know, I, I this is fascinating. It is provocative. It's hopeful. It's inspiring. Um, and uh, I think you're, I think you're, you've demonstrated certainly with me here today, the power of a conversation. And uh, so I appreciate that. And I know that our listeners are struggling to have better conversations in their communities every single day. So this is really helpful. Check out the Thank website, you. is there enough.org. That's where everything is that we just talked about. There's tons and tons of stuff on here. And uh, if you want to get further involved in the movement, do so. If not, at least check out some of these resources on the site and get into them. They relate to our work in the social sector in a big way. So uh, please, please do follow our socials or socials of anybody you consider valuable. Take the time to do that because it lets the audience know people are listening. So thank you. You got it. Thanks again, Daniel. All right, folks, lead on.